Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Morgana. Today we're saying hello to Becky Shining Bearheart. She is a shamanic practitioner who has been working, who worked in Athens for many, many years, decades, and is now working in New York State up near Ithaca. Hey, Becky. Howdy. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. So. I am really excited to talk with you again. For one thing, we haven't had to sit down and have a chat in since forever. Um, I just realized last night that we met 29 years ago. So this is kind of like old home week. Um, (laughs) And Becky was one of the people who trained me in shamanic practice. So one of the things we really would like to talk about since everybody loves all the stories about Athens, is I'd like to talk about the spirits of place and how the places where we live and where we work and how we connect with the spirits, how they're different from place to place. So you have a really good means to talk about that being a shamanic practitioner and you're working in Athens still, you come back. And you work yep. here and you do work up in Ithaca so you can compare and contrast. So give us give us sort of a you know praise of 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 what that's like. Well, I think from well, I'll I'll come at this from a couple different places. So um obviously doing shamanic work, one of the things you encounter is dead people. And um, and in fact, um, my my family's been in the Athens area for a really long time. Um, my uncle moved here in the early '60s and got a job at OU, and then a, a job opening came up in the English department. So my dad moved us from Columbus, where we were, down to Athens to pick to take up that job, and. Uh, Early on, we lived in a little house on my uncle's property, but then this um, farm came open. My dad had been wanting to buy a farm for a really long time, and so it came up really cheap. The house needed a lot of work, but it dated um, to the 1800s, and um, a lot of weird things happened in that house. Uh, after we moved in, I was probably about 14 at the time. Um, one, of, one of my dad's sisters who uh, never married or had kids of her own came down to help us uh, move into the place. And the, the night, the first night we slept there, and I think it was just us kids and her, 
we slept in the living room downstairs and and uh like many old victorian farmhouses they have really high ceilings and a stairway that went up the stairs from the living room to the the bedrooms upstairs and uh, my aunt in the morning she gave us all else she said why were you guys walking up and down the stairs and turning on and off the lights what was that all about and we're like what <laughs> and uh and we it, it happened that the the family that had vacated the house um there had kids about our age and in talking to one of them we learned that this was not an unusual circumstance and that everybody was really pretty sure it was old Mr. Nice who had built the the original house and who had died in the house. Um, and um, there's was there were occasional visits from family members who'd known the house when they were young. Um, but uh, then later, this was another strange happening. Uh, my cousin, my older cousin, he was four years older than me. So in college already came and spent uh, a winter and spring, I think it was with us at the house. And we were all in school. Uh, my dad and mom were off working. <clears throat> Scott came down from checking fence line. Um, <clears throat> And he walked in the house and Scott was, he was kind of otherworldly himself and uh, kind of like a little bit on the vague side. And uh, he walks into the house and he walks through the living room and goes upstairs to his bedroom. And there's this guy sitting in the chair reading a paper with these wire rim glasses on this old guy. And um, in Scott's mind, oh, this was Mrs. Hudnall's husband, the old, the older woman that came and cleaned for my mom because we were all too busy to do that stuff. Um, she would come in once a week, and uh, her her husband would drop her off and pick her up again after every session because she didn't drive. Um, except that when he got upstairs, he realized, uh, no. It wasn't Mrs. Hudnell's day to clean, and he had seen no sign of her. And, of course, he walks back downstairs, and this person is not there anymore. And there had not been a car in the driveway or anything. So we knew that that was old Mr. Nice's ghost that had made an appearance. And he also saved the house once when uh, many years later there was a chimney fire and he did all kinds of bells and whistles to wake my brother up who then discovered there was a chimney fire and put it out. So <clears throat> we Crow and I offered to do psychopomp work to help Mr. Nice on. And they were like, no way. My brother was absolutely against that idea. He said, I like having him here and he's going to stay into this very day. There's never been any kind of work done to help him pass on. So that that is one kind of shamanic, ghostly experience. But the other thing that's very interesting is the way that um, uh, my friend Sarah Garrell 
So Sarangaral um, wrote a couple of books on Mongolian shamanic practice. One's called Riding Wind Horses, and the other's called um, Chosen by the Spirits. And uh, she herself was of mixed heritage. Her father was Scots-German, and her mother was Hungarian and Boryat from Siberia. So um, she grew, she was born and grew up here in the States, but in the nineties went back to get trained. And one of the interesting things she talked about was how in the Boreat view of souls, you don't have just one, you got three. And so there's the soul that's your personality soul that dies when you die. And then there's the soul that reincarnates, and that's the another soul. And then there's a third soul that actually goes into nature in, in some form. So it can inhabit a tree or it can inhabit uh, uh, a body of water or a boulder of some kind or a mountain you know and and so th- these spirits become spirits of place um along with other kinds of spirits no doubt um but of course if the spirit um is not restful then it's it it basically becomes a ghostly presence that can if it's really unhappy, do a lot of harm. So right. they have, they have all kinds of rituals and things that you do in cases like that. So when I when I encountered that uh, perspective on souls, that w- was very interesting to me. You know that different way of looking at it. Uh, that the soul has parts or aspects like that. So I think uh, I think old Mister Nice became part of that house. Yeah, when yeah. he died, that part, that nature spirit part of him, just became part of the house. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um. What kind of, you might want to explain what psychopomp work is. I know what it is. You know what it is. Morgana knows what it is, but every listener probably doesn't. So could you describe that and then we'll, we'll continue on. Okay. So, so psychopomp work in, in pretty much all cultures around the world that practice shamanic healing in any way, um, the, the shamans are responsible for certain kinds of healing. And one of the things they practice is soul guiding, helping spirits cross over if they're stuck here. And that's what psychopomp work is. And so pretty much what you do is you make contact with that spirit and find out what's keeping them here you know, and there's lots of reasons why people can get stuck. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of they died in such a 
quick way, like a motorcycle accident or something like that, they didn't even actually know they were not in their physical body anymore. And you often have to talk to them about what happened and explain, hey, this is what occurred. And, you know, sometimes they need some healing for that because they're a little freaked out. Right. Why people? Why won't people listen to me? <laughs> how how come Aww. nobody hears me when I talk to them? <laughs> you know, it's kind of sad. But once you explain it, that it gets better from there. Usually, yeah. And then there's the people who die from things like drug overdoses, or maybe they're maybe they had Alzheimer's, and so that creates a different set of circumstances that need help yeah right um so when you talk about spirits of place here in athens i mean one of the first things that you said to me when i met you all those years ago i do remember one conversation where you talked about athens and you said it was very very energetic and that it had cyclical movements of energy um and then crow talked with me about that years and years later and he said oh yes it ebbs and flows it it moves with the seasons it moves with the moon it moves with the sun and it changes so can you talk a little bit about that well i think you know from my perspective um I think, you know, I believe that the land is sentient. When I teach people to connect with their ancestors, the first thing we do, very first thing we do, is we actually go to the land where the ancestor lived and connect with the spirit of that land before we ever try to connect with the ancestor. And um, and I think part of it, you know, like Crow was a feng shui practitioner. He learned it many like decades before I knew him he learned all about feng shui the Chinese study of how the lay of the land affects energy you know the movements of energy and and that kind of stuff and I think certain places and it's you know it's partly the land itself the earth it's partly the kind of creatures that live there and the trees that grow there. It's also the people that inhabit the space. You know, you get you get all these different energies interacting, and um, and so and and as I said, the you know the formation of the land itself. You know, the land we lived on we called Dragon Waters because this creek flowed through, and there was this hill that in traditional feng shui is in the position of the dragon, right? And then there's another hill on the other side, which is the tiger hill, you know? And and um, and so you get these, these flows of energy that are related to, um, you know, energies that we kind of archetypal energy, I guess you'd say, that we know about, you know? And then, um, you know, there's the rock that the the vibrational energy of the rocks 
you know, and the trees and plants that want to grow in a place that affects, you know, I think it's, there's an interaction, there's a relationship, like the seed gets planted, but does it grow into anything? Right. Some land harbors certain kinds of plant energies and things. Uh, And you could even start talking about, you know, the, that, you know, the, the devas of the earth, you know, or the plants, you know, the spirits of the plants. And we have lots of plants around here. So Mm. (laughs) being surrounded with woods and woods interpenetrating the town and, and everything. I always liked dragon waters because of the movement of the water itself. Um, I always found that if, whether you want to call it key or orgone or just spirit energy or whatever, it moves very easily along with water. And that was one of the reasons I really liked that, that general area. And of course that's, out in New Marshfield, which has water all over the place. Yes. Hence the name, New Marshfield. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's there's just so much, and there's a lot of water around Athens as well. Um, It's it's Appalachia's just that way. You know, we have floods, we have creeks, we have um, underwater rivers, underwater you know, or underground water sources, wells and springs, water just seeps from the earth everywhere here. And I, I can't help but think that that doesn't contribute. I mean, it, it must contribute yeah. greatly to the type of energies that, that flow and move and ebb around our uh, hometown. Hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, when you talk about the moon, you know, I think... Anywhere you got lots of water, there's, yeah, you know, and the moon, you're going to have like movement between the two, right? There's, there's this way that they're always connected. Yeah. And water, even in a scientific sense, is a conductor yeah. of electricity. Um, and it's a really reactive element. Well, not element. It's a, not an element. It's um, a molecule. It's a very it likes to grab things and it likes to dissolve things. And it's just, it's a very active molecule. It likes doing all kinds of things. It, it repels and it attracts and it binds and it dissolves. Yeah. Yeah. And we are blessed with a great deal of it around here. So that's, that's a wonderful thing. I Until think, it floods, then it's not. Yeah. Then <laughs> it's not so wonderful anymore. Yes, we all know what that's like. But I, I think you know that also is what contributes to the lushness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because I I remember Crow talking years ago about how um, he you know he spent a lot of time in tropical climates. He spent time in Taiwan in the mountains and in you know in th- those kind of tropical subtropical areas and he said what, one of the things he really loved about Athens and particularly where we lived was you know when you have that much water you've got lots of lushness even if even if you deal with winter you've got 
you know, these incredible springs with, you know, just everything just going crazy and growing and growing. He loved that. Yeah. It is a really rich, richly verdant area. You know, Mm -hmm. you ride, even if you just ride along the bike path, like one side, you're all down the river and the other side, you are going through woods that are just right there. And it's my favorite thing to do is to bike throughout all the seasons. Well, except for winter. I'm like, no, that's too cold. (laughs) Um, I stop somewhere around November when it's too chilly, but you get to see the seasons and, you know, you get to watch all these ferns unfurl and all this moss like go green and you get to go through where there's, you know, marshland and it's just so many frogs and you're like biking through a tunnel of frog songs And it's really, really beautiful here. And I think being so close to active woods that are like filled with animals. Like I live in town, like off of a major road. And there's two foxes that run through our backyard all the time. Mm -hmm. There's woodchucks. There's a family of crows. I have robins nesting in my crabapple tree out front. And I'm in an apartment building. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little herd of deer that comes through every night and there's just all of this life everywhere, mm-hmm. yeah. constantly. Mm-hmm. And I think that points up another thing about land spirits or spirits of place. That when you have that kind of physical life, you also have energetic life, you know, the light spirit life you know, that just um, is attracted and supports the physical. You know, we, we don't, you know, our culture is so good at separating those two, the physical and the spiritual, but, you know, to our way of thinking, they're one thing, you know, they're connected, they're related, they're interconnected. And so, you know, I think that's another lovely aspect of living in Athens, being in that area, is how um, interconnected those two really feel. You know, um, I've talked to people of all different religious persuasions over the years, and they all express an awareness that, that the spiritual component uh, of our existence is is part of and and supported by the the beauty the physical beauty and then the natural beauty of that area you know and and it's one of the things that i love about ithaca when i first came here i didn't really expect to stay crow and i were in the process of splitting up i wanted to give him lots of space not feel like i was like like it just he needed space, I felt like, um, in order to process that. And, and, and so I came up here on the invitation of a mutual friend, actually. And she said, you'll love Ithaca. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And, (laughs) (laughs) and, and and so I, I visited and I, um, and I, I gave myself a year and then just stuff happened. I started getting attached to the place and the people and, and it was interesting because, you know, we're kind of not exactly at opposite ends of Appalachia since it goes further south. 
than Athens. But Ithaca is actually the northernmost part of the Appalachian range. And a lot of people don't realize it. It goes all the way up into New York state, but it does. And the feel of the land, there's so much similarity, even to things like music. Old time music is really big up here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Folk music of all kinds, really, and, and other kinds of music. But I was surprised (laughs) to encounter in my first spring here, you know, an old time gathering of of fiddlers and you know it was it was quite something because i was transported right back to athens when i experienced that yeah so felt so familiar yeah i know barbara you with all your experience in west virginia you know what i'm talking about that culture yeah Yeah, that culture is alive and well yeah athens athens (laughs) interestingly I didn't know it when we first visited Athens. I did not know that my dad's family first settled in America in Pomeroy and had a farm in Meigs County until many years later. So they had come from Germany, from Bavaria, and settled there. No clue. I just know that when we first came to Athens and we were driving through Shade, First off, there's something creepy in shade. Yes. We, noticed, we both <laughs> yes. noticed that. Yes. And I don't know what's creepy there, but the fact that it's named shade and is creepy is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and both Zach and I were like, hmm, shade. That's creepy. You know, but as we got through near the end of shade and toward closer to Athens, I was like, it was like a bell rang and I felt at home and I was like, well, that's weird. You know, it feels kind of like, and it looks like parts of West Virginia where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is really strange. And then we got into the town and I was like, I feel really at home here. Mm -hmm. Well, so last week I was fooling around on ancestry.com and um, found out that one of my great-grandfather's aunts is buried at the West Union Cemetery, where I lived a block away from there when I first moved in in Athens. So, yeah, I have, I have people here that I did not know that I had. Um, and as for, as for Ithaca, I visited once because my brother-in-law graduated from Cornell and um, Zach's dad graduated from Cornell. So he, you know, they both wanted to show us around. It is beautiful. It is absolutely gorgeous. And it reminded me of Athens. Zach and I were like, this is like big Athens. Yeah. (laughs) This is like bigger Athens. It has a really good feel to it. Um, since then I have found that the little lights that show up in the woods in Athens and dance around pretending to be fireflies, but they're the wrong colors, um, also are seen fairly frequently up in Ithaca. So (laughs) interesting that I hadn't heard. There is, there is something there (laughs) doing something that's very similar to our something. Yeah. Well, and it pulls, it pulls in the same kind of people too. 
you know, there's that thing that happens in Athens where people, you know, they come to school there and then somehow they never leave. Yeah. I have friends who say the same thing, who Mm -hmm. are, who say I came and it's been, I came here 10 years ago and I have not left. And it sometimes feels like Athens doesn't want them to leave, but not in a creepy way. Yeah, I know. I, I, yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. And I believe that. And also it's almost like Athens has to trade. Like if somebody leaves, somebody comes. Mm-hmm. I've observed the same thing. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. I've observed, I've observed that. Yeah. Um, I just yeah. ran into a friend the other day who just finished her degree at um, one of the two colleges here. And I was like, oh, are you going to leave? And she's like, I don't really want to. I, this area is just so beautiful and I love the woods. And I love, and I'm like, I, yep, okay. Uh-huh. Athens got another one. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even if you leave, you there's come back. a high chance you're going to come back. Yeah. It, yeah. it wasn't just Zach and I. And we lived in, let's see, three different places. After we left, and we visited many other places, um, but we always dreamed about coming back to Athens. So, yeah. you know, we liked Providence, Rhode Island. It's a nice small city. Um, it's beautiful up there, but we were like, nah, we're, we, we don't want to stay up here. So we, we moved to Baltimore, which Zach had been born there. And he, he always had the dream of going back there and living there. We were there for a couple of years. And he's like, nah. And we headed back to Ohio and lived in Pataskala for a couple of years. And even though I still miss the woods there, we had um, eight acres of woods that backed onto 80 acres that belonged to a neighbor that we were allowed to wander around in. I was in those woods every day, even in rain and snow. Um, I still miss them, but it's not the same. Yeah. It's, and there's, there's plenty of energy and critters and things and stuff in those woods. Um, but it's not the same as Athens. Yeah. There's just something. Well, part of it is the, the caliber of person that is often drawn here, you know, as that feels it's home. And, and there's a kind of community of people that have been, been drawn here and and found community and people of like mind i think there's (laughs) you know there's the hive mind thing but there's also you know sort of the earth mind thing that pulls a certain hive in Mm -hmm. you know and uh i think i think that's one thing about athens um i remember talking to paul tesher many many years ago i think I think, well, we first met through the Athens Food Co-op back when there was one. And uh, we were talking about sometime after we met, we were talking about it. And he said, yeah, well, I think he, I don't know whether he was born on the West Coast and headed for the East Coast or the other way around. But I remember him saying something about, yeah, I got to Athens and I somehow like didn't quite go any I mean, and it was kind of a major hub on the east-west track, 
that people would make, you know, um, and a lot of people, well, you know, we have more intentional communities and in the county than, you know, I think in the whole state of Ohio. <laughs> yeah, probably. And, and you know what else? The large proportion of artists and craftspeople that have been drawn mm-hmm. to this area over the years. And musicians. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're like Appalachian fairyland. Just, hey, all the artists and musicians and craftspeople, everybody who makes stuff, you're just going to stay and feel like you should keep staying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've said Um, it before on the podcast. I'll say it again. A friend of mine said that Athens is like fairyland and that you go there, you intend just to get your degree, but you drink the wine, you eat the food, you dance with the natives and you wake up and it's 10, 15 years later. You've had your degree for like 10 years and you still haven't left. (laughs) Yep. 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 Yeah. And even if you do leave, you're likely to come back. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because a very, very good friend and longtime student of pros and mine um, had left Athens and discussed because OU was breaking uh, breaking promises. And she said, OK. It was being itself. Yeah. And, and she was like, okay, I want to get a master's in education and where should I do it? And so I, I actually did an astro relocation chart for her and, and said, you know, the Southwest is probably a really great choice. So she ends up in Las Vegas teaching school uh, and getting her master's and thinking, oh, I'll be here for the five compulsory years that I have to be here to, you know, get all these goodies. Um, And then, <laughs> you know, she's there. She ends up there for 13 years because it, she got a really lovely job, just the job she would would have dr- dreamed of. Um, and but now she's coming back to Athens. She's yeah. finally done and come back to Athens. Going to be living at Dragon Waters. So there you go. <laughs> It, it 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 switches people in and out. It's yeah. just too funny. Um, we just talked with Alex last week, and it turns out the first house she lived in when she came here was the house that one of my oldest friends had just vacated. And Alex came from California to live in that house. And my friend had just moved to California out of that house. <laughs> that is funny. I, I was, she was telling me and she was describing the house and I'm like, that house sounds really familiar. I think I helped pack that house up not that long ago. What? It, and then later after we finished recording and we're still, you know, talking after Morgana sensibly went and had dinner at like 10 o'clock at night. I eat late. <laughs> <laughs> I it, professional cook time. I'm I essentially know. a vampire. <laughs> I know. Um, I wake up late. I go to bed late. <laughs> we were talking, and and she's like, "Oh," and she talked about that house, and I said, "I think I know that house," and I think, and then as we talked, 
we realized what must have happened. And she was like, oh, yeah, because my friend who lived there said that the last person who lived there was an academic and got a job in California. I'm like, yeah, I know exactly who that is. And she's she's one of my oldest friends from Athens. So they we all cycle through here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, we see a lot of that up up here in Ithaca, too, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and it really is like fairyland. And there are lights and people see fairies here. It's uh-huh. just odd. It's just the whole place is odd. There's ghosts. <laughs> There's house oh, yeah. ghosts. <sighs> There's all kinds of creatures here. Yeah. We uh, have... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say... That we... There have been a number of occasions where we had to do house clearings with, because, you know, I mean, sometimes you do work, psychopomp work, and you're going to guide the soul on, and that's a great thing, and everybody's happy about it. You know, some relative has asked for the work. Then sometimes you do the work, and they decide that, no, you know, You've told me what I need to know. I'm okay with that person sticking around. It's okay. Um, But a lot of times there are situations where the person was truly disturbed. Yeah. And uh, like the person who died was truly disturbed and needed a lot of healing and a lot of help moving on. And there, the, the, people living in the house or whatever, were always really grateful for that work to be done because everything changed. The whole energy of that house would change after that disturbed spirit was helped. Um, You know, uh, I've heard stories of, you know, paint peeling off of walls and other weird things like that, you know, um, and then it seemed like once the spirit went on, things things could work, you know, could function. Yeah. Um, have you talked much about fairies yet? Uh, we just interviewed, I don't know if you've read any of her books, Morgan Daimler. Um, her books are really good. Uh, she She translates directly from the Irish. Uh, so she, and she knows her traditional lore and she actively communicates with the other crowd or the good folk or however you want term them so as to not upset them. Um, you know, she's written some papers. Yes, she has. Yes. She's written okay. That, that I do know that name. Yeah. So Talk some more. I want to hear about this. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, she has a lot of, it was kind of odd. We were talking and it turns out that she and I and Morgana have had a lot of the same types of experiences Mm -hmm. um, with the, the good folk. And she, she's really, really an interesting person. She's a really good writer. I really like her books because she's very, very good at giving the actual folklore without sounding like an academic because that'll put a lot of people off. 
so that when you have people who are uh, neo-pagan, Wiccan, witches, um, you know, whatever flavor of nature worshiping types of people, they're not going to look at that book and go, oh, God, I, I can't even read this. This, <laughs> this is like just going on and on. Oh, my God. So they actually read it and they don't get some of that weird watered down stuff that was very popular, I don't know, back in the 1990s, mid 90s, early 2000s. I blame uh, the Victorians. So really <laughs> Victorians. I blame the Victorians for that. They started well, that. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they, they're easy to blame for a lot of stuff, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, you know, and I still, I don't, I don't know if you remember, but when we lived out um, off of Bates Road, I, I think you probably yeah. remember that little I do remember. falling down the hill house. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been as active as that place was. I think there was something about that place that was just... <sighs> That place was a lot. Yeah. There I, was, I was a little girl and I knew that place was a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of activity there. Um, but we still have little creatures. I still see lights out my bedroom window at night. Um, and that, I mean, we're right in town. So, mm -hmm. you know, they're still about and I still, you know, I give offerings because I'm not dumb. I'm not going to irritate anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I always talk with them respectfully. They still steal my stuff, though. But <laughs> yeah. sometimes they do give it back, and it's always in a really weird place. Yeah, yeah. Right. Same. My yeah. stuff goes missing. Um, and I find presents outside, but I'm pretty sure that's the crows that I made friends with. Today it was a mat of feathers from some other bird. Yeah, um, that, that was on my steps. Um, they leave me bits of bone over Thanksgiving. I got a strip of turkey that somebody must have thrown in the trash. <laughs> um, a mummified baby bird. Um, yeah. So that's that I'm pretty sure is crows. But the stuff that goes missing in the house, I cannot blame on the crows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the recent apports that have appeared in my house, the stones, I've had three stones show up in my house. One was actually, it's iron, which is an odd gift for the, the good folk to give unless they were trying to give me a, a message about others of the good folk. Like, there's some, some of the other, other crowd that we don't like but you might want to carry this, but it was weird. It's a piece of cast iron or wrought iron. And it's an eight sided. It's like two pyramids stuck together. Wow. And it's rusted and it appeared in my bedroom. I was cleaning out my, my um, dresser and I, I stepped on it and it's pointy because of course it's two pyramids stuck together. And I was like, this is odd. And so I took it to um, my younger kid and I was like, did you bring this home? Because 
you know, rocks and shells and feathers and all kinds of stuff get brought home. And they looked at it and said, no, it wasn't me. Ask big sister. So I, I sent a picture of it to Morgana because, of course, pandemic. I said, did you bring this home and give it to me? And she was like, no, I've never seen it before. What is it? And I said, well, it's iron. You know, it's magnetic. And she's like, oh. So I showed it to Zach. Zach, did you, you know, is this yours? And he was like, no. I was like, okay. And it was in a, <laughs> it wasn't in a, like a corner or something. It was right in front of my dresser. So I would have stepped on it earlier if it had been there for a while. And then the next thing that showed up was a stone in the middle of the little hallway that goes to our bedroom and to the bathroom. Again, it's a place where somebody would have noticed it. And it's about an inch across, kind of rounded, and it was carved a little bit, but it's so old it was worn smooth. Somebody suggested it might have been a fishing net weight for uh, done by a Native American person. But the groove that it has on it is only on one side. And I show, again, I go around the circuit. I said, Zach, do you see this? No. Morgana, no. I showed it to the younger one who looked at it and went, well, that looks like a coochie. And it does. It looks like the outer part of a vulva as done in a symbolic fashion by a Neolithic person. It really does look like you know, uh, an enlarged version of the Venus of Villendorf's Fulva. So that's the Coochie Rock. And mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that, that's its name now. Uh, I was like, but did you bring the Coochie Rock home, kid? And they were like, no, I've never seen it. Where did you find it? In the middle of the hallway. And everybody was like, oh, wow. Another one of those. <laughs> yeah. And the third one was a small piece of rose quartz that appeared right by my my uh, great-grandfather's chair that I sit in every day. And, you know, again, I stepped on that one because it's much smaller. Why was it there? I don't know. But I keep them all very nicely on the bookshelf where my little altar that goes for the good folk is so that it's, it's there. So nice. I don't know. I love it when that stuff happens. I know. It's great. <laughs> They're giving me gifts again. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting for me because, you know, I, I've been fascinated with folklore and fairy lore for as long as I can remember. And my dad, who was a very, very strong, progressive style, liberal Christian, had this interesting streak in him where he always made sure we had books of mythology and stories and things like that around. And my mother too, to some extent, but dad was really into that stuff. And so I grew up with the literature and the stories. And, you know, my connection with nature was so deep from a very early age I felt spirit in everything and you know felt connected to it 
I've not been a very visual person with all of that. For me, it's more like feeling presences, um, you know, feeling the ener- the energy of them, you know. Uh, and, and so, um, and so then getting into shamanic work, you know, most of my emphasis was on spirits of animals and trees and, and then, you know, the ancestors and the divine ones and, and so on. And, um, I had in the early two thousands, the opportunity to take a workshop with Tom Cowan, who wrote fire in the head, which is about Celtic spirituality. And frankly, it is a great book. I had a lot of trouble with getting all the way through it, you know, just because it seemed like a lot of words, you know, I mean, uh, that's the trouble with books. I mean, they're wonderful ways to learn. And then, but sometimes it seems like people take a long, a long stretch to tell something they could say in a, a you know, a few less words, I guess. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, he's an educated man. So, you know, that was, you know, kind of, a, but he's a great teacher, highly recommend him. And he, he, um, a friend in our, in our drumming circle here, uh, found out that he was going to be teaching over in Jackson and, um, oh, no. at a, at, at a retreat space that, um, somebody and somebody put together this workshop for him. And, um, and so the first year he did, he did a Celtic spirituality one. And we, we did a lot of shamanic work with like the, the gods and stuff. And then he, and then at the end of the workshop, he said, you know, I've been asked would I come and teach fairy doctoring and is there an interest? And boy, I raised my hand up. And, uh, and so I did that workshop with them the following year. And it was really profound for me because I think the thing that was most profound was the way in the next few years, all this stuff started showing up, books and things started showing up, validating information I was given. Right. And, and, and of course, it was interesting because my, my primary, very connection is actually a Selkie. But I also have this connection with someone who would never identify herself, but which I eventually figured out was Rhiannon. Um, and, um, you know, uh, you know, who has, who, who's called Queen of the Fae by you know in some accounts and so on um but then there are many queen of the fae so yeah oh yeah it's not not limited to just one but um i what i love is when you when you when you're doing the work whatever it is just even being open to spirits and you start having those really interesting experiences and you're 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 journaling them and all that kind of stuff. And then later you come across a book and it's like right there and you're going, well, (laughs) thank you very much. (laughs) You know, sort of that thing where the, where the book falls out of the bookshelf at you or something, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I've, yeah, I've, I've kept the, the connection that I've always had with them 
Um, and it is amazing when you get the, the confirmation from a source you didn't expect. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one thing, if you listen to the episode with Morgan Daimler, you will hear that, you know, she'll tell a story and then either Morgana or I will go, oh, and then something will have happened with us that was the same basic thing. And, and it's like, oh, okay, there's that, you know, there's that, there's that other thing. And it is very, very interesting. And, and one of the things, this is a good sort of entryway into this topic, um, in neopaganism, there's the concept of unverified personal gnosis that later, as you say, becomes verified, um, where you're given a piece of information through shamanic work or spirit work or psychic development or whatever. You are in contact with a being from the other world and they give you information. And then later you're reading something and either someone else has had the same experience and the same piece of information has come to them or it's part of folklore or mythology that you were not aware of. And then yeah. it becomes verified personal gnosis. One of the things I've noticed a lot in communicating with people in the paranormal uh, world is neo-pagans have been talking about verified and unverified personal gnosis versus tradition and mythology and folklore forever. You know, we, we've pretty much got that. We've had that hammered out for a good long time. But a lot of people, especially if you're talking about UFO contact or contact with what are called aliens, I'm not of the opinion necessarily that they are aliens, but I let people name their experiences, whatever they want to, because it's not my business <laughs> to be telling people, no, that's not an alien. It well, may very might well be not aliens. be, but it's not my, <laughs> it's not my business. It might be aliens. It might it, not be aliens. Nobody knows. Exactly. <laughs> we don't know. That's the thing, but they will, because there hasn't been that kind of discussion they will say things like, well, this just proves that, for example, white buffalo woman is the lady, the same lady that I know of from this UFO experience, who is the lady of all of the goddesses. It's the same person and all of that. And I'm like, you can't tell the Lakota what their experiences you can tell what your experience is and you can say that there's similarities and maybe you will get verification later but you can't do that so kind of let's talk a little bit about how these things happen how you have again experiences that are yours versus universal or mythology myth myth ah, mythology or folkloric experiences and traditions there's a tension between tradition and experience that i think a lot of paranormal people don't understand that people who are in the neo-pagan movement and have been for oh 
I don't even know how many years now, a lot. We understand that. And I kind of would like to try to see if we can kind of articulate some of that to kind of get that conversation started. Yeah, boy, it, it's, it's big stuff. So, so, um, so a couple of thoughts and one thought is that, um, my pure experience of something, I mean, if I'm truly experiencing it, it's my experience, right? Yeah. Um, and if it happens to look a lot like certain traditional experiences, people tend to label that as appropriation. Yeah. So that's that. So that would be something I'd like to address, actually, because this friend of mine, uh, Ukrainian um, ancestry, uh, working as a TCM doctor. Um, for res- reservations out west for eons, right? Um, very involved with um, uh, one of the Kiva people and uh, um, one of the um, one of the. Um, I'm trying to remember which one it was now, but not so important. Anyway, um, because she had helped many many people, um, they would invite her to traditional ceremonies that white people normally don't don't get to see. Um, And uh, at one point she decided to um, uh, leave that area because she wanted to get um, an advanced degree working with um, Ukrainian ways. Um, right. There was a population in Canada she was going to work with, herbalists and traditional folkways. And they have this particular university had an extensive library of materials. And one of them that she came across was a video of a solstice, winter solstice celebration. And when she saw this, she was in shock because it was so similar to the experience she had in that same ceremony in the Kiva, right? And so she ended up taking it. She went, she decided to travel back to New Mexico and share this with the people that she had shared the ceremony with um, there and she was so um, I mean it was just unbelievable the similarities really so close and um, they were astounded they were astounded because like men like like many native people everywhere they weren't interested in having their ways appropriated by other people, but the idea that the spirits could give the same messages and the same rituals to someone on the other side of the world. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it, it kind of points up sort of, you know, there's 
there's the spirits of place, and then there's the way in which certain energies are universal. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's like they filter through, you know, in different fashions. You know, that they're transmitted somehow in different different ways. So, yeah. um, and uh, you know, so like. You know, what part matters? The fact that, you know, we have different color skin or we have, um, you know, a different language. We speak a different language. Or is it what matters is that spirit says the same thing to us. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and it, it's... Um, I get the piece about appropriation that matters to me a lot, but I think, you know, I'm 66, almost 67 years old. And I've come to this place in my life of listening for the authentic message that spirit has to give and knowing that sometimes the language is less important than the intent, you know? And if your heart is open and spirit puts something in there, are you going to push it away? Yeah. You know, I, I just don't, that doesn't seem right to me because if you push it away enough, spirit's going to stop doing that. Yeah. I uh, agree. Yeah. It's a it's a difficult subject. It's it's because there is genuine appropriation that does happen. Oh yeah. And it's never a good thing. Um but at the same time my experience with different flavors of spirit has been that they don't necessarily care about your ancestry as much as we would like to think. And there's also the problem that we're American and our ancestry is from all over the freaking world at this point, you know, and Mm -hmm. how many people are related to Genghis Khan, for example, from Europe. Mm -hmm. and and the east so many people and then you know they come here to america and so we have genghis khan's umpteen millionth great grandchildren running about not even knowing um my experience with the orisha and the loa for example i'm about as pale as a person can be um but somehow Yamaya reached out and grabbed. And in my experience, she didn't really care what I looked like. She could talk with me. I could talk, I could hear her and I could talk with her. And that's what happened. And it wasn't just me she was grabbing. She was grabbing other people at the same time. And for whatever reason, that happened. So I I am very careful to not be disrespectful of traditions but at the same time i do believe that spirit grabs reaches out touches Mm 
whoever it touches. And there's also the issue, of course, of hidden ancestry that we don't know. That's right. Because until we got these genetic tests, there's no way in many ways to know. So there's that. Now, Morgana had a really interesting thought. So I want you to, to okay. repeat it so we can hear it. Um, so I was thinking about um, UFOs, ufology, high strangeness, and folklore. I think there's always been a conception of, you know, the paranormal and particularly UFOs as a new type of folklore. Um, researchers have talked about this. It's become much more common these days to frame it in a folkloric sense. And I think that because it is sort of a new and emerging folklore that there are a couple of things that can happen. There is what has always happened with the high strangeness cases where it does not fit the folkloric model. So it is somewhat rejected as, you know, okay, you saw a light in the sky, but you also smelled something horrible and heard a growl and then ran in your house and then you had poltergeist activity for like three weeks. You know, that may not necessarily be classed in the same way as a typical UFO encounter. That's more right. of a high strangeness encounter or someone will say that was a Bigfoot encounter. Um, but there's more and more now there's an acceptance of that being a high strangeness encounter and that fitting that folkloric mold. So you, you, you have in the new folklore that's forming, you have UFO people and you have fairy people and you have Bigfoot people and you have all these types of encounters that are almost like the divisions between Catholics and Lutherans and Protestants, like <laughs> because they've been they've been encountered this the other in a particular way, and that is the type of believer they can become. And so, with that, as this being a new folklore becomes something that's an emerging thing in our consciousnesses, and as people talk about this, and it's an emerging thought and idea people compare the folkloric aspects of their UFO or Bigfoot experiences with existing mythologies and religions, which is fine and is what you should be doing. But maybe people aren't as good at comparative religion yet <laughs> mm -hmm. and aren't as good at being respectful yeah. about it yet because it's such a new thing to be doing with high strangeness and with the other. And I mean, to study it and to examine it, you have to know, like, if you really want to get to brass tacks and get all the way down uh, into the roots of this sort of thing, you do have to sort of be a folklorist of many parts. Like, you have to know folklore from all over the world because there's things that, to go back to, you know, two completely different cultures will have very similar ceremonies, you know, that can be attributed to that spirit can teach the same thing everywhere, but it can also be attributed to there are only so many ways to put humans in a trance. 
<laughs> before drugs <laughs> are discovered. Yeah. It can be both. Like, it can be both, I think. And I think it is both. I think human ingenuity figured out drum beats and dances and, you know, psychoactive substances to figure out how to get to spirit and contact spirit. And I think there's only a limited number of ways to do that. But I also think spirit has probably been like, okay, this way works. Let's just explain it to them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I just think, I think because the study of UFOs is so new and the folklore around it is so new and is emerging, it's, it's got stumbling blocks and mistakes that are happening and all of these conversations that are brand new conversations that are happening for the first time. And I think it's yep. kind of cool to watch it happen. And I think it's really cool to be in any small way a part of it. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's, that's, you know, back in the, the early 2000s, the late 90s, the early 2000s, um, I was talking on a message board on the internet with some very intellectual people who knew me only as a person who wrote interesting things, was a really good cook, had been to culinary school, was a chef and did these things. That's all they knew me as. And somebody had said something about UFOs were nonsense. And I said, no, 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 they're not nonsense. Um, I mean, you can believe that that's fine, but there is something happening. People are experiencing these things. Um, I've experienced strange things. I'm not going to point fingers at somebody, tell them they're crazy. Cause that means I'm crazy too. And I mean, I, I, it, if it's a case of we're all mad here and we're all friends and that's cool, that's one thing, but I'm not going <laughs> to accuse somebody of being crazy because they're not. Um, and the, the people on the message board were like, wait, 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 what, what do you mean you've experienced these things? And, and I said, look, UFOs, I look at them as an emergent folklore. And folklore is nothing but history written down of people interacting with non-human intelligences, which you can call them spirits, you can call them ancestors, you can call them fairies, you can call them aliens. I, I don't really care what you call them. You can call them ghosts. But there are non-embodied, non-human and non-embodied human experience, you know, uh, uh, creatures, intelligences out there. People have been experiencing them all through written down history. And before that, because we didn't know how to write it down, but it's still traditionally been told to us all of this time. So what we have with UFOs is we're having a new folklore emerge that is telling us the same messages that have been told to us over and over again. And if you look at it that way, and if you look at it as a history of people's experience, then it makes more sense to you. And you're going to be less likely to just dismiss it as nonsense. And um, that, was a, that was an interesting thing, because what I think a 
a shamanic practitioner is doing is continuing that lineage of working with the spirits and continuing a tradition that, well, it's not one tradition, but it's many traditions, but it's a, it's a river that has many tributaries and many creeks that run into it that carry it toward the ocean, which is spirit. It's the same kind of thing. It's fairy doctoring is the same kind of thing. Um, seers and, and psychics, it's the same. We're all traveling on this same river, going in the same direction. We just come at it from different creeks and springs and, you know, it's just, you know, some of the rivers have, there's a branch off this way and, and we're going to find more branches to that river, I think. So I would, I would agree. I mean, well, there's, there's lots of permutations, you know, I mean, one of the things I, <laughs> I find very frustrating is the, you know, the arguments people seem to be having all the time about what is shamanism and why and why you can't call it that because that word is from a particular language and blah 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 and and it's like really you know <laughs> really we have to make up uh, a new word again <laughs> yeah right i mean you know you could you know there are five different hungarian words you could apply to what i do because the, the Hungarians only stopped doing shamanism in the 14th century, you know, right. uh, and, and all that shit went underground, mm -hmm. you know, because it had to, because you didn't want to be killed to be because you were a witch, you know, exactly. you didn't want to be burned at the stake, you know, <laughs> and then the smart ones figured a way to keep doing the same old stuff without getting killed for it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could argue, particularly in the early church, that the priests were shamans because they're literally interceding for humans. Because originally in the church, you couldn't talk to God yourself, you had to go through the priest. They were interceding between the divine and the mundane and acting as intermediaries and making yep. sure the making sure that at birth you were baptized in the name of God and given God's protection and living in the service of God. And when you die, when you married and when you, I, there's a couple others that I'm not, I don't remember what all of them all are. All of the sacraments. You all the sacraments. I was not, were. I know this from a historical perspective, not from a religious yeah. perspective. Um, but and also when you die, they made sure to give you last rites to make sure your spirit went on. So when you arrive, they make sure you belong to your particular spirit, which was God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And then when you die, they make sure your soul passes on, which is very shamany. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's Catholicism. Yeah. Well, just, and Martin Luther pointed yeah. all that out. <laughs> yes, and it was Catholicism was too pagan. Yeah, yeah, and, which it and was. Then, it was, and deep then deep we deep. have you know Paganism. Reformation and Counter Reformation and all this mess. Yeah, um, yeah, 
I, I, one could very easily say that there's, I mean, you're going to upset people, but. Well, and I'm not saying they were, I'm just saying you could argue that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think shaman is, and it is a generalized word for what a shaman does. <laughs> I think it's okay to use that word. I'm not I'm not sure why it wouldn't be. It's just what we call it in English. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. English steals steals words from other languages. But all languages do. They I sure mean, do. Every time a culture encounters something that they don't know, they borrow the word from whoever they learned about it from. Yep. And that's true of Native American languages and Australian languages and European languages and African languages. <laughs> you know, um, all you have to do is get on the Internet and start looking at uh, what people call X, Y and Z and and you'll discover, well, you know, we didn't invent planes, so we have to use the word for airplane that was coined by the culture that made them first. Or, you know, yeah. that's just a very, you know. When uh, I took Russian, I, I kept having problems because I had also taken German and French before I took Russian. And the court languages of the Russian um, empire, the imperial court languages were not, Ru- it was not Russian. It was French or German depending upon who was the ruler at the time. They had a a series of Prussian rulers there for a while. So German came in. French was more preferred as the court language. French was was everybody in Europe at a certain point spoke French as a court language practically. Absolutely. Um, So there are all these borrowed words and it would mess with my brain. So I'd be tooling along, doing great, answering the question that the instructor asked me in Russian. I would be answering in Russian. There'd be one of those damned borrowed words in there. And then I'd flip and start talking in, in German or French. And, and the instructor would just watch and nod and then start laughing. And then I was like, <laughs> I did it again, didn't I? <laughs> and she'd say, yes, you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's it's frustrating because I think there's a difference between how do I want to say this? There's a difference between appropriation and exchange, and in my mind, appropriation is something that happens when your ego gets involved and you want to look good. And so you take something that you think makes you look good from some other culture, you know, like that makes you look smart or more spiritual or whatever. Um, I've known so many people in the neo-pagan world, you know, or, you know, just people in general, they want, they want to learn all about Peruvian X, Y, Z, or, you know, whatever it is, you know? Um, and, and, and that, you know, I'm like, I don't 
get that because what I want to know more about is what my ancestors did personally, you know, and, and, and our, our ancestry is rich. It is rich in all kinds of stuff. But, you know, what I've discovered is that if you go back in my ancestry, I've got Scythian, sometimes said Scythian ancestors. I have uh, my blood type and my and some of my other stuff goes back to Iran. Yeah. And a lot of Western that's where we have our origin is in ancient Iran. Because yeah. that's where people came and then, you know, uh, apparently I just found this out yesterday, maybe. Um there's the um some of those nomadic peoples were what morphed into the Celts, mm-hmm. right? And you know, various other groups. You, we humans have been all over the place. Yeah. And you it, well, for one thing, it ought to be teaching you tolerance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because really yes. We probably all go back to the same human. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, we're all, we really are all related. Yeah. I and that's another thing that spirit keeps trying to get into yes. our heads. Our heads must be really thick. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think but, the, the operative word is take. Appropriation takes. Mm-hmm. Exchange gives. Yes. And I think that is that is the biggest difference is appropriation takes something, particularly if it is not understood with no care about its significance or its importance to whoever it's taking from. An exchange is a meeting of two cultures that give and exchange things that are important to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a that's a good clarification. That's, um, a, that's a good way to say it. And I also think that yeah, I think that I'm I'm trying to nutshell it because <laughs> it's uh, my brain will go off into like a spaghetti tangle if I let it. <laughs> so I'm just there. Nutshell. Yeah. And yes, everybody's ancestry probably does go back to like one person or one small group of people. Mm-hmm. I think that um, if we, as as Becky said, it it should teach us tolerance. Um, I, I think that eventually it will. We can't be so thick-headed that we keep hearing all my relations over and over and over we are all connected interconnection over and over and over and not eventually get the message. I hope yeah. so. Maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being uh, hopeful about it, but I, I think that we will eventually get there. Hopefully. I think it's the work, you know, that the, for most of us who are working in the spiritual realm, you know, with any authenticity at all, you know, from 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 a heart place of just loving and um, loving and having compassion for all creation. 
I mean, for me, that's the core of it. You know, I, I don't have to like everybody and I don't have to agree with everybody and I don't have to, um, I don't have to even think that everything they, everything that comes out of their mouth is, is gold, you know, but I can hold them in a space of sacredness and relationship where even if they're doing things that piss me off or that I think are totally wrong, there's, you know, a friend once coined the term, well, you could, I really like his soul, but I don't have, I don't care much for his personality. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's okay. And, you know, if we're taking from that place, if we're working from that place, then we can, we can hold each other in that space. And, I think, you know, I mean, it's a challenge. It's not easy. No. no. But when, when, the, when we can do that, there's, there's a lot of room for diversity. And there's a lot of room for just holding humans in Holding humans in this in a spiritual matrix, you know, that allows for um, connection that might lead to something, you know, yeah. for us as a as as a race, you know, as a the human race, you know. Um, that's where I go for it, you know. That's my I agree that. Um, oh my god! My gram used to articulate it as, "Well, I love him. God bless him. I love him, but I don't like him much." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I... that's how she articulated that particular sort of feeling. Yeah, my my view is I have an er- inherent respect for life. And if you are living, I have an inherent respect for you because you are alive. And that means I shouldn't do anything to harm you or make your life difficult. But I also reserve the right to not have you disrespect, have inherent disrespect for my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's basically how that works is mm-hmm. all life is important and all life deserves inherent respect. I don't have to love you. It doesn't deserve love or affection or liking, <laughs> but it deserves respect. Yeah. So I, I apologize to the weeds in the garden I put bugs back outside instead of squishing them if I can. But if you're a black widow spider and you're in my house, I'm going to step on you. 
because you pose an inherent risk <laughs> to my life force. So I don't have to be be bros with you. <laughs> like yeah. I would I'll try to catch you under a glass, but like you're super poisonous. So like if you run at me, it's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, there are, you know, people out there in the world who, you know, destruction is what they're about. Yeah. Yeah. And And I I can set my boundaries around that, but yeah, you're not going to do that to me, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, and that, Hmm. I had another thought. I was about to go with, you know, I feel like you have to do that with spirit sometimes too. Like you, sometimes you're like, it's three in the morning. It is three in the morning. I would love to talk to the pretty lights that are appearing, but like, I'm going to sleep. If it's really (laughs) important, you will tell me in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) Or it'll be a dream. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or it's a dream. I just, I have woken up. I've been awake and reading because I couldn't sleep and I've gotten a drink of water and gone to pull the blanket over my head and seen glowing rectangular yellow eyes like right above my bed and just been like, nope. (laughs) And like just pulled the blankets over my head and gone back to reading on my Kindle and like, I'm not dealing with you right now. I don't know what you are. I don't know why you're here. I don't want to know what you are or why you're here because that's just not, no, it's three in the morning. There's a whole nother conversation you could have about grounding, centering, and shielding. Yes. <laughs> we can always have you back. I think that's a, yep. a very good Because those are handy, handy skills to have. Even yep. if they sound very new age and flaky, like, no, really, it's handy. It yep. is I sleep useful. so much better. <laughs> yeah, it is useful knowledge. And uh, not everybody has that knowledge. All right, Becky, I know that you have uh, an appointment to go to. So is there anything else you want to talk about? Because I want to give you plenty of time to get ready. I, to be honest, I feel like we've, we've come to a good, a good spot. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about some pretty interesting things and we've also, added a little philosophy in there, which is always good. Yeah. So, I yeah, so. I feel complete. So. Okay. Excellent. Well, I hope you come back because yes, I'd love to, I think this is, this is really, really a, a fruitful kind of thing to talk about. Um, not all of our listeners are um, members of, of any nature based spirituality, but I still think that, they're going to find this interesting and useful and things to think about. So I'd really love to have you back. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. See you again. And it was great to talk with you again. It was so nice to talk to you. Yeah. (laughs) I had a great time.
Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.